What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. It is indeed a pleasure to be with you, especially those who came 350 miles just to hear me. <laughs> no, that's, that's not true. It was almost perfect that Dr. Carl Truman of Grove City College wrote yesterday in the Wall Street Journal. He wrote yesterday in the Wall Street Journal an editorial that outlined how mainline Protestant churches and even the Roman Catholic Church are facing massive fragmentation over issues relative to sexuality. He compared and contrasted what we are going through with the controversy that occurred a hundred years ago called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, one that tore the uh, evangelical church apart. He says, were that earlier uh, controversy concerned God and his character, for example, whether God could become incarnate, whether God could be born of a virgin, that was a controversy concerning the Bible and the nature of God, and now we find ourselves in a controversy that is very different. It says, right now, the churches in the United States are torn apart in a crisis over what it is to be human. Now, Truman's very recent editorial joins with a number of evangelical authors who have rightly been saying that the church is in deep trouble. The church is facing a crisis with issues like pornography, cohabitation, divorce, homosexuality, and transgenderism. Now each of these is a massive topic and I'm really glad that this conference is addressing many of these very thorny and sticky issues. Brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus Christ needs to have a solid foundation knowing the nature of humanity to meet this challenge. Tonight I hope to present three points on human nature, a fourth on the implications of our salvation in Jesus Christ, then explain something of personality theory that's behind the crisis and close with a biblical proposal on how to view the image of God, a proper biblical view of the image of God. Let's begin with three points on the nature of humanity, and we turn 
to the Bible without needing to open your Bibles because the passages are so well known to you. Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26 through Genesis 2, 25. These are, point number one, the issues relative to Adam and Eve. The issues relative to Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and oh, they were good. Adam was perfect. He was in the garden with his bride, and they were naked and they were unashamed. They were given a task to do by their loving Father in heaven, who is also their creator and their Lord. And as they lived in that garden, they experienced blessing. They worked hand in hand with their creator. For example, naming the animals is almost a playful narrative. God, in a sense, wants to see what his image bearer will name the various creatures in all their complexity and all their beauty. But as we think about Adam and Eve in the garden, although they were in God's playground, like the way we take care of our children, to be happy in the playground, you have to know the rules of the playground. And God gave them rules. There were certain things that they were to do. We call them creation mandates. And there was one prohibition, just one little prohibition. And had they continued in the garden, God promised them life in a way that would be most abundant forever and ever. Now we know that they're going to fall. But let's underline that to be in the image of God does not mean to have absolute freedom. To be in the image of God is to know who you are, to know your place in the universe, and to know your creator in whose image you were created. Just thinking about the other end of the story, when we are in heaven, we will know who we are. We will know the nature of our creator. And we will not be autonomous. That's a theological word. We will not be absolutely free. In fact, in heaven, we will be the most free to be obedient. And that's true freedom. Adam and Eve would have experienced true freedom had they withstood the probation that God gave to them with uh, being forbidden to eat the forbidden fruit. So point number one, it was beautiful, but Adam and Eve were not autonomous. That is, they lived under divine lordship. Subpoint number two, humanity fell. We know the narrative of this from the New Testament. Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19. This is what we call the imputation of Adam's sin. The imputation of Adam's sin. Adam and Eve were given certain things to do, a prohibition not to do, and they did what they were commanded not to do. They ate the forbidden fruit. And brothers and sisters, the sin wasn't in the fruit. The fruit was a sinful fruit, but it looked like any other fruit. The sin in the heart of Adam and Eve is not something that is 
objective, it is something that is subjective. In other words, the fruit that Eve held in her hands, she says, is beautiful for the eyes and will make one wise. And she was mistaken. She was foolish because her heart already screamed with passion to disobey her Lord, her creator, and her father. So when we sin, sin is not found in the object. In other words, we can't say that that car that just cut us off as we're driving up or down Route 8 in the rain, that car made us sin when he cut us off. No, what made us sin was from our hearts. That's the nature of sin. And we get an anatomy of sin as we analyze what Adam and Eve did. Now, if you were God, what would you have done with Adam and Eve? You put them in a garden, and it's beautiful. They, they have to take care of a garden. And have you thought about the Edenic garden? There's, there's no weeds. So how do you take care of the garden? you tell the carrots to line up or something? I don't understand, but it must have been beautiful. So they're placed in this garden, and they are free to love and care for each other, and they spit in God's face. They rebelled against his command. They rebelled against his rule. It was terribly wicked, and if I were God, I would have gone and just blown them away. I would have said, forget it. You're not worth it. But God, in his tender mercy, God, from the bowels of grace, gives a promise that a seed will come from their loins who will bring salvation. A future seed will come. And that's nothing less than hope from the ashes of tragedy. It was a desperate scene. But judgment comes because God promised to Adam and Eve, dear children, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Now, did they die that day? The answer is yes. But the actual dissolution of their bodies took a long time. And they died in horrible ways. They, they died as they pointed fingers at each other. The woman you gave me. She made me eat. He should have said, no, no. Father in heaven, the woman I failed to protect, have mercy on her. Put the blame on me. He should have been the protective husband that God had intended from the beginning. And she blames the serpent. And the curses and the judgment comes all around. Now the question for us, as Christians, for us as believers is what is the relationship between what happened in a garden so far away, a garden so long ago, does that have anything to do with every one of us? And I trust you're here and you already know the answer. It has everything to do with us. Brothers and sisters, we were born under the first Adam. Reflect on the nature of God's promises to them. Do this and live 
do this and die. The prohibition was there and the promise was to them that they would continue in eternal life if they would sustain obedience to God. But in their disobedience, they as our genetic heads, that is our biological first parents, every one of us in this room has the same grandparents. But the relationship that we sustain to Adam is more than genetic. In fact, they are what we call our federal heads. We are in a federal relationship with them. And all of us as Americans understand federal relationships, especially in April when we pay our federal taxes, right? We know what it is to be in a federal relationship. We know what it is to be underneath powers that are above us. We know that the President of the United States represents us for good or for ill. We are in a federal relationship to our nation, but so much more deeply, all humanity is in a federal relationship to Adam. So we are born under the first Adam, the Adam of the garden. Point number three, what is human nature like after the fall? What's human nature like after the fall? Clearly, as God outlines the beginning of the creation, and he gives certain gifts to Adam and certain tasks and responsibilities are placed before Adam, we begin to see the nature of the image of God. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and Adam and Eve were to order and maintain the earth in a regular cycle. God is always to be worshipped. And had Adam and Eve remained in the garden for at least a week, they should have taken one day to stop their labor, stop their procreation, and simply sat at God's feet, learning from him. They were to worship him. They were to name the animals. So as God is creator, so he gives us creative labor to do as his image bearers. Now after the fall, did we lose the image of God? The answer is no. No, we did not lose the image of God. Now what we see around us and what we see in our own re unregenerate hearts is something that is terribly deformed. It is severely handicapped but it is not wiped away. In fact, men and women all around the world still engage in creative labor. Men and women all around the world are to be responsible parents, to be responsible spouses, to be responsible in terms of national obligations. So men and women, unregenerate men and women still bear glimpses and images of that nature that was so beautifully set before us in the garden. And men and women, both regenerate and unregenerate, make choices in life. And I'd like to explore that with you for just a few minutes. All of us make choices every day. You are here despite the rain. 
it was really raining when we came in. And, uh, and some of you are still a little wet. We, uh, we dodged the raindrops or we used the umbrella and it wasn't really very satisfactory either. You had chose to come here. Uh, you put on a clean shirt or you put on something. And, uh, and you chose to eat your dinner early and come here at six o'clock to hear some guy blabbing on and on. So you've, you've made real choices to be here. You could be doing 20 or 30 other things. All of us make responsible choices every day. We get, uh, we get up on Monday morning and we choose to go to work. We make our children go to school. We make our kids eat their vegetables, even if they don't like them, because we know that it's good for them. And you're here tonight because you know it's good to reflect on these things of God. Unbelievers also make choices just like we do. Unbelievers decide not to come here tonight. Unbelievers choose to follow their heart just like you have chosen to follow your heart to be here. You are here because you want to be here. There are other things that you could have freely chosen to do. So human beings, both the regenerate and unregenerate, make choices and they make a hierarchy of choices. So uh, I had to pick out a tie tonight and uh, Keith Evans chose not to. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I had to pick a color. Shall I wear a red tie or a blue tie or a yellow tie or be like Professor Evans and not wear a tie at all? And it's a legitimate choice that I made and it's a legitimate choice that unbelievers make too. What color tie they will wear, what color shirt they, whether they will come to the meeting or not come to some meeting. In fact, all of us choose those things that seem to be the best for us at that time. Did you get that? You should be writing that down. All of us choose to do those things. We call that the highest good. We choose our highest good, our perceived highest good at the time. Well, in fact, it's my wife who perceived that wearing a red tie was a good thing. And I perceived that it's wise to follow my wife of 45 years because that's the wise thing to do. Amen? Okay. So uh, we make choices based on our perceived highest good. Now let me turn this just to all of us who are believers. What about when we sin? In the moment of our sin, our perceived highest good is faulty. In the moment of sin, we choose to do that X. And then after we do that X, we go, I, 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 why did I choose X? I really didn't want to choose X. Have you ever felt like that? By the way, Paul feels like that. It's in the book of Romans. The things that I want to do, I don't do. So what Paul is describing is something that both believers, now uh, here I want to just speak to believers, 
that all of us choose our highest good and sometimes our perceived highest good is not our real highest good. It's our perceived highest good and that's when we sin. So that helps us to understand the nature of sin and I'll come back to that as we uh, come to the end. The unbeliever, the unbeliever, in terms of his perceived highest good, how does his mind work? It's easy. The unbeliever hates God and hates the things of God. I, I don't want to be too mild. It's not that he or she simply doesn't like God. In fact, brothers and sisters, unbelievers hate God. Is that too strong? I don't think so. Paul's very clear in Romans, isn't he? The unbeliever hates the things of God. So what is the unbeliever's perceived highest good? It is not to be here tonight. It is not to do the things of Christ. It is, in fact, to oppose the things of Christ. Now, different people in different circumstances, different cultures, different communities will manifest their hatred to Christ in different ways. But whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever, we always choose our perceived highest good at that minute or at that time. And the perceived highest good of unbelievers is what we call total depravity. The unbeliever cannot do that which is ultimately good. What is ultimately good? To bow the knee to Christ. So to make my point crystal clear, in hell, the people are in hell because ultimately they want to be in hell. Is that clear? The people in hell are there because they want to be there. Well, wait a minute, you say. Nobody wants to be in hell. But I reply, oh, yes, they do. Because they don't want to bow the knee to Christ. They would rather shake an angry fist at Christ than bow the knee freely. They will bow the knee. But it's because a rod of iron will smack the back of their legs. They will fall down because Christ will command it, but it won't be from the heart. It'll be because of force from outside. That's total depravity. The heart of man is desperately wicked. We see this right before the flood narrative. In Genesis 6, we're told right before the flood that the heart is like a, a factory of idols. It produces evil again and again. And then in Genesis 8, we have, after the flood, you have the exact same Hebrew phrase. It says, the heart of man is desperately wicked. So that's the nature of the unregenerate heart. It's called total depravity. But once again, just like in the garden, God is so good. God gives to the earth both his special grace and his common grace. Israel was the recipients of God's special grace, his salvific grace. And you are here tonight because you've experienced that grace in Jesus Christ. But the unbelievers have also experienced a kind of grace. 
The unbeliever can take an aspirin for a headache. The unbeliever can enjoy a Thanksgiving dinner with a great big fat turkey and mashed potatoes and stuffing. That's divine grace, but it's common grace. It's short of salvation. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is very clear in the Old Testament and into the New that he still gives rain in season to the unregenerate. The sun still shines upon them. They still have many blessings on this earth despite the hardness and coldness of their hearts. My fourth point, moving from the image of God, is to focus on us. You are here because you have seen your desperate need for salvation in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You are here because Christ has put a call upon your life. We have experienced the love of God. And as we think about God, he creates the heavens and the earth. And God, all three persons, has shed forth his love for us to call us to himself. So why are you saved? The answer is, God the Father put his love upon you before you were even born. Why are you saved? Because the Son said to the Father in the eternal counsels of the Trinity, I will go, I will become incarnate, and I will suffer on the cross for him. Why are you saved? Because God the Holy Spirit called you out of the depth of darkness and united you to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is the work of God the Trinity. We have been saved by the love of the Father, the work of Christ in time, and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And as the Father has loved us and Christ has died for us, so the Holy Spirit has united us to Christ in what we call in theology an organic union. We are organically united to Christ. Now, the word organic is used now in grocery stores. And that's the word that's used for the more expensive vegetables. <laughs> so uh, I don't understand how, how that works today, but uh, certainly I can understand, for example, if have you ever seen someone have a tree planted in their yard and you've got the tree trunk and the ball of roots and uh, by the way, you want to have a big ball of roots for your tree, otherwise it's going to die, right? And the roots and the dirt are all mixed in together. They are organically united. That's how we are united to Christ. We can't be separated from him. We have no identity outside of him. The Holy Spirit, in fact, dwells in us. The Holy Spirit, known as the Spirit of Christ, he dwells in us, and what does he make us? He makes us into temples of the Holy Spirit, men and women who no longer have their eyes set upon the things of the earth, but we have our eyes set upon our heavenly lover, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for us, and he lives to intercede for us, and we live 
for him. Our identities are now in him. This is what we call, in terms of systematic theology, our union with Christ. I trust that I've been making sense. And I trust that in your hearts, you understand this, that you have been united to Christ. This is a key to uh, this whole first hour. You were in the first Adam. You were left in your sin and misery. Now by divine work, you have been united to Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls the second Adam. And that's the key to understanding the image of God. The first Adam was a beautiful manifestation of the image of God, but in the fall, a corrupted uh, uh, image that is uh, just barely visible. As we've come to Christ, we have been united to the true image of God. So Christ is not only second Adam, but true image of God, and we've been taken up into him, and that's the key to understanding the image of God in humanity. We have been united to Christ. And what does that mean for us? Why are we here tonight? Because we know that the future impacts the present. That is, heavenly life is awaiting us. Christ is waiting for you, and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that causes us to get out of our houses, into the rain, into our cars, into the rain, and here tonight. The future, what we call the eschaton, the eschaton impacts us now. Our salvation takes us from this realm and, in a sense, lifts us into the heavenly realms. I trust that fourth point was clear. Number five, very briefly, the root of contemporary problems relative to human sexuality is found in what's called personality theory. Personality theory. And uh, there have been books written on this, and I'll cover it in like three minutes. So I hope that I'll be clear. And if I'm not clear, uh, grab me during the break. For personality or personhood theory, the notion of being a regular male or female human is not enough. There is an inherent dualism in personhood theory, a dualistic worldview, a competition between our bodies and the real us that are inside our bodies. Our bodies oftentimes aren't well appreciated in personhood theory. The real you is your soul or your inner person. In fact, there's a seriously negative view of the body in contemporary personhood theory. And there's a reason for that. In Western culture, we have lost that notion of goal or telos to humanity. If we're simply a, a lump of matter and we're going to be put into the dirt in the end. There is no goal in life. We are not moving toward something good or something evil. We're just existing. There's no end. There's no 
purpose in life. Life is inherently frustrating with no purpose. Any one of us who are parents, we know that when we train our children, if you don't give them a goal, if you don't give them something to shoot for, the activity is inherently frustrating. Brothers and sisters, all of those around us who aren't Christians are inherently frustrated by the nature of life itself. In fact, it's led Western culture to say this, I am not my body. I am not my body. In fact, sexuality is imposed upon my body. Sexuality is something that other people put upon me. They force it on me. It's like the parents who make me eat the vegetables. I don't like it. I want to be autonomous. And sexuality isn't derived from the body. We, because we are not our bodies. We are something else inside. Well, it didn't even take me five minutes. And Professor Evans could speak for five hours on this topic. But let me come to a conclusion in the time that's left. Brothers and sisters, there are two Adams. The first Adam is the Adam of death. The first Adam is fallen humanity. The first Adam and his children are full of lust and full of rage. Remember Cain and Abel? The first Adam and his children are like a family of Cain's who will even spill the blood of their brother. They'll spill the blood of their brother because of their inner passions. Their perceived highest good is best vented in rage. Brothers and sisters, life in the first Adam is like being a citizen of Sodom or a citizen of Gomorrah. They can be struck blind, but the rage for homosexual lust will cause them to tear down doors, to break through barriers so that their passions can be fully vented. It's a terrible life. It's a life full of fury, full of lust, full of anger. The message of the second Adam is the message of liberation. The message of the second Adam is the one that transforms the red-hot passions of a demonically oppressed Mary of Magdalene, transform that heart to a heart that yearns for intimacy with the Holy Son of God. And where are we? We've been set free from the first Adam. Our feet have been placed upon the rock of Jesus Christ. We are now identified with the second Adam and we bear his image. My great hope through this entire conference 
is that we can be exhorted to walk according to that image. To know who we are in Jesus Christ and to walk faithfully, hand in hand with him. We can't compromise with the children of the first Adam. They stand with total depravity. Their perceived highest good is diametrically opposed to the Bible's teaching concerning that which is good. So what do we need to do? Know who we are and walk in maturity. Know who we are. And as we walk in our renewed image of God, we can now show compassion on the sons and the daughters of the first Adam. We know that they are full of rage and frustration. And brothers and sisters, we have the sweet answer to that rage. We have the sweet answer to their lusts. We have the sweet answer to their tremendous frustration. Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the one who sets us free from the life of darkness that seems to spin into absolute meaninglessness. And that's the nature of the image of God. Oh, it was good in the beginning. It fell in Adam. And that putrid, tarnished image is left in the sons of the first Adam. Because of the grace of God, the second Adam has come, has called us to himself, has renewed us in the image of God, and he commands us simply to walk as sons and daughters of the king. Tonight, tonight, let's begin that walk. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.